Welcome and thank you for joining us for our eighth edition of the Class Action Fireside Series. My name is Ante Gollum and I'm a partner in our disputes team based in Perth. And it's my pleasure to be joined today by some of our partners from the National Class Actions Team. Firstly, Cameron Hanson, who joins us from Sydney. Cameron, welcome. And also Greg Rowan from our Melbourne Disputes Team. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Thanks, Ante. In the context of some recent reviews and inquiries into the class action framework in Australia, we've seen much said recently about class action settlements. Uh, for example, in some recent evidence to the joint parliamentary inquiry, there's been some commentary around the average number of class actions that are funded that are then subject to settlement. Approximately two out of three of those class actions will resolve by way of a, a settlement. In that context, we thought that it would be quite interesting to have a discussion around settlements of class actions and how those matters come to a settlement in relation to the mediation process itself and some of the strategic considerations that are necessary to prepare for and conduct such mediation. As part of that broader context, we wanted to cover off three areas on this afternoon's discussion um, and cover off those in some detail, but also accepting it's probably a topic that we could spend um, hours talking about, given there are literally chapters in textbooks that go into settlements of class actions and all the related considerations. But for the purposes of this episode today, uh, we will touch on firstly some of the procedural developments that have recently occurred that impact on class action proceedings, and in particular, the settlement of those proceedings. And we'll also then turn our attention to the mediation process itself, and take some time to discuss the considerations that are relevant to, for example, appointing a mediator, to the conduct of a mediation in a virtual context, given the restrictions that we're finding ourselves in with COVID-19 still being in play. And finally, we'll at least start a conversation around some of the strategic considerations that are relevant to preparing for that mediation. For example, the timing of the mediation itself, or even the preparation of a successful or effective mediation position paper. With that overview, let's get into the detail of today's discussion. And Cameron, I think it's fair to say in some of our earlier episodes, we've had discussions in relation to some of the recent procedural uh, developments in a class, class action context, but it might be helpful to touch on some of those to give that some context to a settlement discussion. Yeah, thanks, Ante. So, I mean, for those of you who've been involved in settlement discussions, as you know, um, at the end of the day, they come down to generally to a couple of pretty simple questions. You know, one is what kind of discount is the plaintiff um, prepared to take for the what they consider to be the true value of their claim? Um, what discount will they take to buy the certainty of an outcome? And on the defendant's side, you know, how much are they prepared to pay in order to buy peace effectively? And, you know, if those two numbers, um, you know, align with each other, that's when you'll achieve a settlement. Yet to some extent in class actions, yeah, that same dynamic arises. But there are a whole lot of other um, procedural uh, overlays to that, procedural wildcards that just make um, settling a class action a bit more tricky. And two of those have really been highlighted by some of the recent uh, decisions, procedural decisions that have been discussed on some of our other, um, other chats. I just thought I'd call out two of them. The, the first is the common fund order. And um, so broadly, you know, as, as you'll all probably know, the idea of the common fund order is that the court makes an order that all group members will um, pay effectively a percentage of their share of a settlement to the funder. 
Um, in the past, funders had to literally sign up group members and get them to agree by contract to, to pay the, the funder their commission. The idea of the common fund order was the court would just impose that funding commission on everyone. Late last year in the Brewster decision, the High Court effectively said that the court did not have power to make a common fund order at an early stage of a class action. What is left undetermined for the moment is, does the court have power to make a common fund order at a later stage of the proceedings? And there've been some um, differing views on that expressed in the federal court today. Some of the judges say, well, there's a, there's a power for the court to make any order it thinks um, just in, in connection with a settlement of a class action, for example. And that would therefore empower the court to effectively impose a common fund order as part of a settlement. Um, but then you've got other judges who are really saying, no, the effect of the High Court's decision is that common fund orders are never appropriate. And at most you would have um, a different type of order, a funding equalisation order, which would, would not increase the commission to group to the, um, to the funder, but instead would just spread the commission from those who've signed up over the rest of the group members. Um, and that can produce a very divergent outcome for a funder, depending on how many group members they've actually signed up. The significance of all of this is it's even less clear whether the court would have power to impose a common fund order at the end of proceedings. That is, if you go all the way to judgment, can the court impose a common fund order at that stage? If the answer to that is no, the funder could find itself in a position today where it's, it's run a class action, possibly had success, and yet at the end of the day, the court says, well, I don't have power to make a common fund order, so you're only going to get a cut from those group members who've signed up. So at present, the dynamic from a funder is going to be, if I can settle this class action and the defendant is prepared to agree to a common fund order being made, and there are judges who are indicating they're prepared to make common fund orders, does that provide an extra incentive for me to agree a settlement rather than going all the way to judgment and running the risk that the defendant then, even if the defendant's unsuccessful, the defendant opposes a common fund order and the court refuses to make one. And so at present, you know, funders have got to be very conscious of the impact of common fund orders um, and, and the potential outcomes if they settle or if they don't settle. The second procedural issue is, is registration. And again, that's been touched on earlier. Really the wildcard there is from a defendant's perspective, obviously the main thing you're looking for in a class action is certainty that you bring the claim to an end. And the key thing that a defendant's looking for in a settlement agreement is a release. The idea of registration was from a defendant's perspective to ensure that every conceivable group member was bound by the settlement and gave a release, but only those who registered would actually share in the, in the, the amount that was to be paid under the settlement. Now, if registration orders aren't permitted, what you're left with there from a defendant's perspective is, well, I might settle with these group members, but I might, by doing that, running the risk of a follow-on class action or, or the other group members who haven't yet registered being mopped up later. I'm not actually buying certainty. I'm not really buying peace. And that's then got to be factored into the price you'll pay as a defendant, but also into the... Um, the structure of the settlement. And there are a number of different ways you could try and address that issue. And as Ante said, we could spend hours you know, talking through them. But it is a, a real factor for defendants at the moment as you're approaching mediations as to how you achieve that heightened level of certainty that I don't settle this class action and then face a follow-on class action. And Kevin, I think it's fair to say that final factor is a reality that we're all going to have to embrace 
um, for the next foreseeable future on the basis that in the absence of some further judicial development of um, the case law, which doesn't seem likely given where those matters that you mentioned earlier have come to, um, and the legislature not taking any steps, this is um, the reality that we find ourselves in and are going to have to make the best of that situation as we embark on settlements and mediation processes um, um, into the, in the new year and, and the period after that. Yeah, that's right, Aunt I mean, one of the things that we as a firm submitted to the current inquiry was that the um, parliament should expressly permit registration processes because it would facilitate settlements. It is much harder as a defendant to set, you know, to settle a class action at the moment. As I say, there are ways to address the risk, but they're not as good as a registration process. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see whether parliament actually picks up that uh, suggestion. Exactly right. I think um, we'll definitely probably come back to one of those topics or both of those procedural issues in due course on, on other episodes as we, as you say, follow developments both judicially and uh, through the legislature. But perhaps with that context in mind, Greg, it might be helpful at that point to bring in some discussion around the mediation process itself and some of the considerations that are live um, in the current environment, um, in particular, as I mentioned in opening remarks, we're all in, in a COVID restricted environment to different degrees across the country. Uh, virtual mediations are increasingly what's required in, in that environment. Um, you know, the issues around that sort of process, the selection of a mediator, perhaps you might make some remarks on all of those. Thanks, Ante. So beginning with um, choosing a mediator, um, obviously in any mediation, getting the right mediator for the case is, is really essential to having a, a successful mediation. And, and that's particularly true in the context of class action litigation, uh, given some of the complexity and the unique features that one finds in a, a class action. Um, generally speaking, um, when we mediate class actions, uh, we, we tend to see experienced lawyers appointed as um, mediators. That might be a senior Queen's counsel or, or, or possibly um, um, a, a retired judge. And what's key is, to, is for the mediator to have a real grasp of the class action landscape, as well, of course, as, as the, um, the experience and, and, and gravitas that's needed to gain the confidence of the parties and, and, and really to na navigate the parties through to a settlement. And of course, as in any mediation, that, that um, can require creativity and emotional intelligence to break um, the, the, the deadlocks that can commonly um, arise. Also, from a defendant's perspective, um, it's helpful to have a mediator who um, understands the types of issues that will typically arise in a class action, um, um, grounds on which a class action might typically de be defended. And, and, and one example of that, of course, is, is the way the, uh, the claim in loss is, is, is framed. There are some pretty distinctive features of a class action that really come to the fore in the context of mediation. Um, perhaps um, an, an obvious one to call out is the sheer number of, of participants. Um, it's common, for instance, for there to be um, um, a, a number of claimants. It might be that there are um, several um, funders behind those claimants. You might see um, several respondents, um, a combination of corporates and individuals. There could also be cross-respondents. And, and, and typically in, in, in most mediations, there will be insurers involved as well. You, you, you really imperatively need a, a, a mediator that is experienced and comfortable with that level of complexity. There are some questions that arise that are common across all mediations. One is 
the, um, the, the age-old debate as to whether you want a, a mediator who's at the um, facilitative end of the spectrum or perhaps someone who's more um, evaluative. Uh, the truth is the very best mediators um, are generally able to flex between those two styles, but, but most mediators favor one or the other. And it's important to, to know when you're appointing a mediator, what you're looking for and to, to, to do due diligence into the, the um, possible candidates. Uh, just very briefly, a, a facilitative mediator is someone who will typically uh, help the parties structure their negotiation, but generally speaking, won't offer views as to the, the merits of, of, of each party's case. Um, that can be unhelpful if you're going into a mediation, really feeling you're, you're strong on the merits, um, but conversely welcome if, you're, if your case uh, isn't so strong. And that's to be contrasted with um, a more uh, evaluative style of mediator, um, someone who's much more likely to express views on the, the legal and the factual uh, issues in dispute and, and who might challenge the parties um, as to their positions. Um, that can be um, um, a welcome if you're going into the mediation with a strong case, but conversely, if, um, if, 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 if you're weaker, um, you may not welcome um, that, that's, that sort of challenge to, to, to your case. Um, just moving on to um, the, the other point you raised, Dante, um, that of virtual mediations, actually just staying with the question of how to choose a mediator, um, what one um, characteristic, if you like, that's currently in vogue is, is, is um, uh, the, the mediator being tech savvy and being comfortable with conducting the, the mediation uh, online or partly online. That's something that we've all had to, to get used to over the, um, over the last few months. Um, in my experience, most mediators have uh, ad adapted pretty seamlessly to, to, to that new world and, and, and those that perhaps are less comfortable have, um, have sought help from, from technical assistance. Um, virtual mediation is, is really one of the hot topics, I think, amongst um, um, litigators and, and, and nowhere is that more true than in the class action context. Um, given, as I say, some of the um, um, complexities that you typically find in, 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 in mediations is, is probably one more of those things that six months ago would have been hard to imagine, but um, um, lawyers and their clients have adapted. And I think we've reached a point now where there's quite a significant amount of know-how and understanding as to, as to how to, um, to, to conduct mediations virtually. And I'd certainly say to, um, to everyone listening, it's certainly not something to to be deterred from doing it, um, it's it's a different process, um, but um, uh, no less effective. Uh, in, in terms of um, my own reactions to to the virtual mediations that I've been involved in, they, they they certainly take a bit more planning. It's it's helpful to have um, one or possibly a number of sessions in advance to discuss uh, amongst the parties and with the mediator the um, the aspects of the mediation that will be different by virtue of the um, virtual nature of the mediation that will cover topics such as the platform to be used. Uh, m my sense is that mediations can take slightly longer when done virtually as well and, and, and that ought to be um, f f factored in. But um, look, it's a, um, it's, 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 it's a, 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 new, um, a, a new device for resolving disputes that I think um, will over time change the landscape of, of mediation both um, generally and also from uh, from a, a class action perspective so it's certainly something that we we ought to to get used to 
Cameron, I think you um, had a mediation um, that was virtual or at least semi-virtual uh, a week or two ago. It'd be um, interesting to, to, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's an interesting hybrid where um, you know people in Sydney able to be in the room together, people in Melbourne all doing it virtually. To your observation, Greg, I mean, mediations generally, the parties don't spend much, if any, time in a room together. So the reality is that mediations can actually work very effectively remotely. You know, the mediator is the one who goes between the parties uh, and as long as you've got someone to support the mediator in, in navigating the technology, I think they can work just as effectively um, yeah, remotely as they do uh, in person. And Cameron, I think, you know, as part of that planning process for mediations, there's also that question around, um, you know, when is the ideal time to schedule a mediation? And, you know, there might be, you know, various schools of thought on that about um, allowing certain evidence to be developed and exchanged to ensure that, you know, for example, from a respondent's perspective, one has the ability to address the case put against your client. Um, what are your thoughts on some of those issues? Yeah, but the reality is I think about three quarters of, of cases when they do settle, settle after evidence and before trial. And frankly, there is an element of, you know, reality biting when parties realise that, well, it's either now or never in terms of settlement. We either settle now or we're going to trial. That parties probably put their best offer, whereas there, there can be a tendency before that stage to hold out hope that the other side will move in your direction. Uh, and so it is in practical terms, harder to settle earlier. But there will be certain cases where there, that is possible, where frankly not that much is going to turn on the evidence, where the parties are able to form a pretty clear view on liability, you know, particularly I think where the defendants identify that there is very significant risk for them and frankly they're better off just trying to get rid of the matter sooner rather than later. So there are cases where an early mediation can be quite effective. Yeah, conversely, I guess you'd make the point that even if you don't settle before trial, that doesn't mean matters can't settle. And indeed, nearly, nearly one-eighth of matters that settle, settle either during the trial or after the trial. So again, I think it just emphasises the point that the work that you do in a mediation, even if it doesn't settle at the mediation, is not, um, is not wasted. I think, Greg, you, know, you, you had um, some views on that point about whether you should be settling at mediation or not. Yes, that's right, Cameron. Uh, I, I was um, um, re recounting to you um, s separately before the mediation, working with one um, one, one experienced and um, very highly regarded partner who had a, a policy of never settling at uh, a mediation uh, on the basis that there was always a better deal to be done afterwards. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's a, a, a view that's um, widely shared, but certainly an interesting take on the process. Greg, I think that that probably underscores the reality where mediations are so much informed by one's experience and how people bring to bear, you know, their collective um, experience over a number of matters over a number of years with different mediators and people develop certain styles or approaches that they live or die by in terms of what they consider to be the perfect approach. But probably, as I think we've all agreed in discussing this earlier, that some flexibility and, and understanding of the relevant parties, the issues, is the key to being well prepared and ensuring that you're not fixed to a, a single mindset in terms of how timing or approach or mediator selection should occur. Uh, and see, I think that's right. It's um, but by its nature, mediation is a, an incredibly d dynamic process. Um, it's something that we all prepare for very carefully, of course, but um, that there also is a need for um, agility um, to, um, to, to respond to um, often to quite quickly changing circumstances.
And again, in the context of class action um, mediations, where you have so many um, participants and so many different interests at play, that is, um, you know, that's one of the um, the, the, the real um, um, features um, that, that that one tends to see. Yeah, great. Well said. I think that 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 is probably a good point to finish up today's session. Uh, we could probably go on for quite some time about some of these issues, given the various strategic and um, related issues that arise in preparing for and conducting a mediation. But Greg, Cameron, thank you both for your comments on today's episode. I think it's fair to say there's much more to be said about all of this. And uh, I suspect at one time or another in the next episodes, we'll come back to some of these considerations um, uh, as part of the broader discussion that the group's having. Um, we hope everyone at home who's been joining us today has found the discussion informative and we look forward to you joining us again as we continue HSF's Class Action Fireside discussion series. Thank you and stay well.